The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So go ahead and get started. Glad that you made it tonight. I know it's a little snowy out there. And a special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. So we've been uh, looking at this teaching that comes out of the Buddhist tradition using the four elements as a, just a skillful way of connecting with the body. And it's important that we not get confused by the words that are used, like when we talk about the earth element or the water element, the air element, and the temperature or the fire element. It's just, those are just words pointing to categories of sensation or elements of sensation, like earth, we're talking about feel the earth quality in the body, the earth element in the body. We're just talking about, in the most ordinary way, feeling weight, feeling lightness, feeling smoothness, feeling roughness, feeling hardness, feeling softness. That's what we mean. And you see, we have a word, right? We have a concept, hardness, but the experience of hardness, like when you touch something hard or have your upper and lower teeth touch, that experience of hardness doesn't need the label, or oh, that's hardness, to know it. You can know hardness independent of having a word or a concept. Even the concept of my body and the teeth of my body are hard. You don't need any of that to know hardness. Same with warmth or coolness, or the air element is any kind of movements in the body, and even a sense of pressure, Sometimes when we're sitting up, there's kind of a, almost like the body's inflated, that sense of pressure. That's, called the, that's part of the, what's called the wind or air element, as well as any movement. The water element is more that cohesiveness of the body, that all of the different aspects of sensation. There's a sense of it all sort of being together as the body. That cohesion is considered the water element. But again, don't get confused by the labels of these four aspects of the body. We're really talking about a movement of the knowing mind, the the knowing mind knowing or learning how to inhabit this immediate, direct, very alive experience of sensation. And the interesting thing is when we practice being aware of the body, it's just mindfulness of the body, and in particular, using the elements to help the knowing mind be interested in body as sensation. Because we have to break a very strong habit where we, you know, we might feel the body in a moment, but then we create a mental image or an idea. I'm being aware of the body. But that, and we can cling to that idea. I'm being aware of the body. But that's, of course, not the same as resting and the actual dynamic of the mind-knowing sensation. I can't remember if I read this last week, but there's this interesting passage from um, a Buddhist monk named Bhante Gunaratana. He's a Sri Lankan monk, but he's been in the States for 40 or 50 years. He's an old man now in his mid or late 80s. 
And uh, he has a center in West Virginia called the Bhavana Society. And for many years when he was younger, he was the chaplain, the Buddhist chaplain at American University in Washington, D.C. And he has several wonderful books, including this book that I'm reading from Mindfulness in Plain English. I think it was probably his first book. And uh, he says pretty early on in that book, our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid in some ways. We tune out 99% of all the sensory stimuli we actually receive, and we solidify the remainder into discrete mental objects. Then we react to those mental objects in programmed, habitual ways, right? So we might actually feel some sensation, you know, the mosquito lands and it stings us or it pokes its whatever in us. And, it, and, and then at some point, we feel the sensation, but very quickly we go to some mental proliferation. You know, oh, there are a lot of mosquitoes this year, or who let the mosquito in the tent or into the house, or, and then on and on like that. We don't stay in the experiencing of sensation mode very long. And I can be proliferating about mosquitoes, like, do you think I'll get Zika virus? And has it come to Minnesota yet? And why are there so many terrible viruses out there? And but I could, it could be hours before our, there's another, like the mind isn't fixated on its thoughts about things and this drops, in a sense, drops back into the present moment of experiencing sensation, sight, sound. And in this way, there's this continuous disconnection. There's nothing inherently wrong with thinking about things. But it's really important to be a healthy, wise, and compassionate human being. We have to understand that, in a sense, just to describe it, there are two realities. There's the conceptual reality, thinking. So we're in this abstraction that our thoughts construct. And I always give the example, like I'm at common ground, it's Sunday night, it's a snowy day. Those are all concepts. But it's not like bad to have that thought. But it would be really nice to know that's just a thought when it happens. Sunday night. That's just a thought. Right? Because what's really relevant is a kind of sinking, opening, resting, being interested in what it is. Like, what's relevant about Sunday night is actually experiencing this moment, not the idea at Sunday night. Right? Doesn't, it's same thing like, I'm Mark Nunberg. You know, I could rest in my thoughts about who I am, my history, my, you know, what I think my values are, but what does it actually mean to be Mark Nunberg, right? It's not the thoughts I have. It. I mean, that's something. But what's more relevant, what's more enlivening, what's more healthy is to be able to inhabit this world, this direct and immediate world that in Buddhism we call dharma or dhamma, the way it is. But just through, you know, causes and conditions, delusion, what we call delusion or ignorance in Buddhism, we mostly just inhabit the world of thought, concept. 
and we're so in that world that we don't realize it's just one of two realities in a sense. And, you know, a healthy, saintly, wise human being can live in both worlds. They're not confused by thoughts. They're not against thoughts. But the thought, they know how to not have thoughts sort of define one's experience. So can you experience your body in a moment or two, in moments, can you experience your body where it's not being defined by your thoughts or mental image of your body? What is experiencing of the body, experiencing of the sensation, not mediated by language, your thoughts, your ideas, your mental images? There's a lot of freedom in that, to be able to do that. And that's what we do when we sit, that's what we do when we live our life. We're learning how to step out of the limitations, outside of the limitations, our thoughts, our concepts, and really it's the clinging or the identification with the thoughts, how limiting that is in our experience. This is from Saida Utejaniya. He's a Burmese a Buddhist monk and a wonderful teacher who comes to the West to teach every couple years. And uh, he says... We can't really know the body. We can only think of the body. But we cannot experience body. We can experience the feeling of the elements, right? We can experience heaviness. We can experience lightness. We can experience smoothness, roughness. We can experience hardness, softness. We can experience coolness and warmth. We can experience pressure and movement. We can experience a sense of cohesiveness. But the idea of my body, that just exists as a thought. And if we know how to use thoughts, then thoughts can actually point awareness to the direct experience. Or thoughts can be confusing. In a way, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we have this phrase, right thoughts, or wise thoughts, or not wise thoughts. And good thoughts, wholesome thoughts, are thoughts that orient the mind, the knowing mind, to Dhamma, the way it is, things as they are. And unskillful thoughts are thoughts that lead to more thinking, to mental proliferation, the sort of endlessness of speculation and judging and comparing and wondering and fantasizing and sort of propel the mind ever onward in the world of thought. And then we always feel, on some level, disconnected. Our life feels hollow, right? And what do we do? We think about that. Why am I so depressed? Why do things, things feel so empty? So it's like this is the real trap of having um, been conditioned to trust or be confused by thoughts, to see thoughts and the reality that they construct as the whole thing, the whole package, that's all there is. And we're endlessly hungry in that world of thoughts. That's the existential itch, the existential angst that we all feel. It's not actually inherent in being a human being, which we tend to think. But it is inherent in being a human being that is constantly being lost in thoughts. It's like 
we're not actually living. A little later in that uh, chapter that I read from Bhante Gunaratana's book, Mindfulness in Plain English, he says, he writes, a close inspection reveals that we have done the same thing, he doesn't say this, but to the concept me, he just uses the word me. We've done the same thing to me that we've done to all other perceptions, right? Where we have an experience, but we abstract it into a concept, me, this is happening to me, common ground, Sunday night, snowy, right? These are all concepts, abstractions from the experience. We have taken a flowing vortex of thought, feeling, sensation, and we've solidified that into a mental construct. Then we've stuck a label onto it, me. And forever after, we treat it as if it were a static and enduring entity. We view it as a thing separate from all other things. We pinch ourselves off from the rest of that process of eternal change, which is the universe. And then we grieve over how lonely we feel. We ignore our inherent connectedness to all other beings and we decide that I, he has that in quotes, I have to get more for me, he has that in quotes. Then we marvel at how greedy and insensitive human beings are. And it goes on and on it goes. Every evil deed, every example of heartlessness in the world stems directly from this false sense of me as distinct from all, um, from all else that is out there. So it seems so simple to talk about being aware of the body, training the knowing mind, training awareness to be intimate with the body. And it's very easy to underestimate what a profound shift that can be. Just in a moment of coming into the body, we break free of the prison of the thoughts we have about me and my life and what's happening and what's good and what's bad and the fears and the hopes. All of that conceptualizing thinking is like a prison that we mostly live inside of, a bubble. But we don't realize it's a bubble. So there's two things that happen when we can be present, we immediately feel more alive and more whole. This is what we mean by the word samadhi. It's one of the few times it's good actually to use a non-English word because there isn't a really good English word for it. It gets badly translated as concentration, but a better word is unification or the collectedness of mind. Because living in the world of thought, concept, is fragmenting to what experience come, you know, appears to be. It fragments, it creates a sense of separation, a duality of good and bad, me and you, this and that. It fragments our experience. It agitates the mind. It creates the space where fear and greed, all of that starts to make sense from the construction of me and you, this and that, good and bad. Right? There's no greed. If the mind isn't constructing good and bad, greed doesn't make sense. Anger doesn't make sense. We need this fragmented world in order to get involved with greed and hate and fear 
and all the sort of oppressive, agitated emotional states, they just can't exist without the mind being caught and imprisoned by its constructions you know, that come out of thoughts, out of thinking, out of concept. At the end of this chapter, Bhante Gunaratana writes, Vipassana meditation, the kind of practice we do here, this awareness practice, is inherently experiential. It is not theoretical. In the practice of meditation, you become sensitive to the actual experience of living, to how things feel. You do not sit around developing subtle and aesthetic thoughts about living. You live. Vipassana meditation, more than anything else, is learning to live. There's uh, a monk that had this great line where he's talking about conceit, right? This living inside our bubble of thoughts or the living inside of the meaning our thoughts seemingly construct, put together, right? That's what conceit is. And he says, he describes conceit, any sense of me, as a misappropriation of public property, which is really good because what's really going on is nature. There's just sensation, there's sight, there's sound, there's mental activity, but it, it isn't self. But in that conceiving process, you know, through thinking, the mind, the thinking mind, it constructs reality, and in a sense, it builds something out of what is actually, it builds something seemingly personal out of what is actually public property, you know, or nature, just stuff happening. Or as one teacher in this tradition described it, empty phenomena rolling on. Now, it doesn't help to take that as a concept, empty phenomena rolling on, or you know, the misappropriation of public property, <coughs> and think about that, or believe in it, right? These thoughts, like even the thoughts, the concepts that come in the Buddhist tradition that we use you know, in teaching and, and holding, kind of supporting our own practice, they're only useful, these thoughts, if they point the mind, point the sensitive heart, the knowing heart, to things in and of themselves. And we have to be respectful. This, Although it's a simple process of the mind, the knowing mind, opening to sensation, let's say, opening to seeing, opening to hearing, opening to things as they are. That's not complicated. But just because it's simple, not complicated, doesn't mean it's easy. There is such a force of habit to think about things. And we, on a surface level, we apparently get a lot of safety from thinking about things. We think about what's going to happen tomorrow, and on some sort of superficial level, we feel safer because we can construct a story about what we think is going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen now that President-elect Trump is going to be president. So we, we, we try to tell ourselves a story that makes things okay or tolerable or creates a light at the end of the tunnel or whatever it might be. And we're doing it in everything. We do it in every relationship. We do it in terms of death, right? Have you ever told your story, self a story about 
what it means to be born and then die. Well, I'm going to go to heaven, or I'll be reborn in another body, or I'll... I mean, we have all kinds of stories from the beginning of time. People have been telling themselves stories to make things feel better, to feel safe. And the practice is getting to that place, being so integrated, so present, that there's no need to tell a story. We're not afraid of storytelling. We're not afraid of having thoughts. We need that to communicate, to connect with other human beings. I mean, there are other ways to connect, nonverbal ways. But, you know, to run a culture, to have a family, you're going to need to use language. So we don't have to abandon the use of language, but we're learning to be okay without the meaning that language is used to construct. We don't need to depend, to be identified to the me- with the meaning that language constructs. And this is what we learn by just in the simple practice of opening to the body. When we keep, because it's not our habit, we have to start over again and again. So that so much of what we do in a 30-minute sit and an hour sit is we start over. We notice the mind is thinking, caught up in thought of one kind or another. We remember but we see, the mind knows, oh, that's just thought. And because it understands it's just thought, it understands I don't need, in a sense, there's no need to be dependent, attached to the thought, because it's just a thought. So then it's the non-attachment to the thought that allows that mental proliferation to cease. You don't have to be a person getting in there to get rid of the thought, because then you'd have to construct that. I'm the meditator who's going to make myself stop thinking, right? Then you've just got another thought you've got to get rid of. So instead, you notice there's thinking. The mind, the wisdom in the mind knows that's just a thought. And so as soon as you notice it's just a thought, you're not identified with the thought. You see it as just a ph- phenomenon. It's just like another thing being known, just in the same way that sensation. So now you're not confused by the content of the thought because... The mind is understanding, regardless of the content of the thought or the charge of the emotion, it's just an emotion. It's just a thought. It's just a sight. It's just a sound. It's just a sensation. It's just this natural phenomena that has causes and conditions showing up and is being known. And then the stickiness of the thought has already been dealt with, right? Because the attachment has been replaced with a Wisdom that knows it's just a thought. So that's why the phrase, oh, it's just a thought being known, is a very skillful means to use. You can actually use that, you know, not out loud, of course. I mean, you can do it out loud, but your neighbor will be bothered by it. But you just silently in your mind, you just go, it's just thoughts being known. And if there's a charge with whatever thinking is going on, then notice that, oh, yeah, it's just an emotional charge being felt. The charge is just the charge being known. The thought, the very ephemeral thing of thought, well, that's just that. And then you can come back to the body right, and learn to inhabit with awareness that dance of sensation, the elemental dance of sensation. right? And the first fruit of doing that work is that experience of samadhi. We have an experience of wholeness, right? 
because there's no part of the thinking mind that is fragmenting or creating a duality of me knowing the body. That's not knowing the body. That's not being intimate with the body when there's a sense of me, the observer, feeling the body over here. Right? So that's why we say things like in terms of the instructions, being, in the, being right in the middle of sensation or like today in the guided sit, I mentioned this oceanic movement of body. It's like when you close your eyes, and you can do this right now, and just feel the body, just the vibration, the tingling, the hardness, softness, you know, all the, the great array of qualities of the body that make up the body. You see, the actual direct, immediate experiencing of sensation, it has nothing to do with the mental image, the mental idea of shape of our body. You see? Like, when you feel your body, you know, the word leg or arm or location of the leg, all that stuff, you could impose that on your experience of body sensation. But if you let go of that and just rest in the middle of sensation, this sort of ocean of sensation, it doesn't have shape or location or limbs and this and that. That's not actually the experience of body. And like, feel again, just feel your body. And then, is there any place where there's the edge of where your body ends, and then there's whatever that space is beyond your body? Can you distinguish like what is the body and what's not the body? There's no boundary, is there? Where's the boundary? of the body, like where it ends. Where, how do you distinguish mind versus body? Because the, what we're calling being mindfully aware of the experience of embodiment, it has this, this, this quality of wholeness or non-differentiation. But it doesn't mean you can't distinguish between hardness and softness or coolness and warmth or you know, the different elemental things. But there's something whole about that dance. Does that make sense? Now, so when you inhabit it, there's a lot of emotional, psychological, and spiritual healing that just happens because the, the mind, the heart, the body, this, is no longer uh, being framed by delusion, by the concepts, by the meaning that thoughts give experience. So there's a healing that's involved just in being in the body, just in a moment or several moments of being in the experience of the body. And you'll feel it. Now there's a threshold you have to pass through, which is when we first open to the body, it may be really uncomfortable or it might feel really numb, like there's nothing there. Because the habit is to not be aware of it or or there's this sort of residual tension of 58 years of being tight or not having a peaceful relationship with the body, not having a wise relationship with the body. So first we might feel a lot of tension. And then we'll want to think about it. Why am I so tight? What can I do to make this tension go away? But you see, now we've let go of the practice. So the idea is, 
when you feel whatever you're going to feel opening to the body, the most important thing is not to mistrust what it feels like. Why do we feel so sure that it's dangerous to feel what we're feeling, to be exposed or vulnerable to what we feel when we open to the body? How could that be dangerous to actually feel what the body feels like? You know, because it's whatever the sensation is, it's already here. So like suppressing it or distracting myself doesn't mean that the sensation isn't there. It just means I'm not paying attention to it. So why, why does the mind assume it's dangerous to feel what we're feeling, to be intimate or to be undefended? So we really want to challenge that uh, habit of like, oh, no, this is too much. Because it, it does at times feel really overwhelming. I mean, clearly, if you have knee pain or back pain or you just got the EBGBs and are restless or really dull, really sleepy, it can feel like, oh, there's just no way I can sit with this. I've sat long enough. This is too much. But it's really good to uh, play with the edge. Well, okay, so this feels completely unworkable. Whatever it is, the sensitive mind, the sensitive heart is sensing here in the body. The idea is this is unworkable. This is too much. This is unpleasant. This is scary. This feels like it's going to kill me. And the practice is that's just a thought. Yeah, It's really the sensations feel enormous, feel intense, feel quite alive, quite wild, quite whatever. They feel what they feel like. But can this be okay to relax? Is it dangerous in this moment to soften, to receive, to move into the middle of whatever's going on, to feel what I feel? Is it actually dangerous? And you don't have to believe it is that it isn't dangerous. You just have to be interested enough to play the edge. Well, let me see. I'll check it out. I'll relax a little bit. I'll soften a little bit. I'll be a little patient and forgiving with whatever's being felt here. I'll cultivate a little bit of interest. And then you just see, like, is it killing me? Is something dangerous actually happening that I can point to? Or is it actually somewhat enlivening to relax a little, to open a little, to be interested a little? Is there an intuitive sense of freedom that comes from no longer running and repressing, disconnecting from the aliveness of the body? This is from uh, Ajahn Sushito's book that some of you have been looking at. You can in the weekly email, we're sending out the link each week, week to this book. It's kind of a complimentary text to some of the talks I've been giving the last several months. We're right in the middle now, so we'll probably be using it as a complimentary text for another two months or so. And it's Meditation, A Way of Awakening by Ajahn Sushito. And it's freely available on the Internet because it's written by a Buddhist monk. And in this tradition, at least, they generally don't use regular publishers for their books so that they're freely available. You can download it and print your own if you want or just read it on your computer or your electronic reader. 
And on the chapter, it's uh, page 129, he says, when we con- contemplate form in terms of changeable elements, excitement or disgust don't get aroused. The form of a thing is just what it is right now. It's a phase in the process of changeable elements. We can't own it. We can't stop our bodies changing. In fact, the body is not really ours. There's a lot of passion and pain when we do not take the shape, size, vitality of the body personally. So coming to terms with it as a form that belongs to nature is a way of clearing out a source of suffering and stress. Seeing form in terms of the elements helps us to do that. The elements are a direct perception of body. They become apparent when we sit still and ask ourselves, right now, how do I know that I have a body? That's a great question to ask yourself in meditation when you're doing this style of practice, using your body sensation as the primary anchor or meditation object. How do I know right now there's a body? Like, what is it that's arising in the space of awareness that definitively proves there's a body? There's hardness, there's warmth, there's coolness, there's flow, there's, right, there are these elemental aspects of sensation that the mind can learn to attune to, to rest in. He goes on and says, there will be a sense of solidity and we can also easily discern the movement of breathing and the body's warmth and vitality, strong or subdued. More subtly, there is the sense of all these movements and pressures belonging to the same thing. They flow in relationship. The tingling belongs to the solid matter. The breathing passes through the solid form and affects it. All these are the elements. The solid is earth, the moving is air, the warmth and or vitality is fire, and the cohesive, the sense of everything being bound together, is water. Water is the element that provides shape. So we have this um, first part of the practice where we've tra- we're training the mind to come in, and we start having moments of samadhi, a sense of unification, like resting in the dance, but not the observer outside of the the dance or the person witnessing it outside. It's like it's these elements being known, but the knowing is right there, intimate, right? That's why, why we use that word intimate. There's no distance because distance is, The sense of distance arises from the place of concept. There's a me who needs a little safe space. I'm okay feeling my body if I've got some distance. So last week I mentioned there's a wild quality of opening to the body. You think it's brave to climb a mountain or, you know, to do a triathlon or to get involved in an intimate relationship, but it's much more courageous to open to the body completely because you have to put down every defense. You have to enter what is truly wild, the body. When we're not coloring that experience with meaning that thought constructs, we move into it and we feel that wholeness. And then the interesting thing is from that place of wholeness, 
right? There's no, relatively speaking, there's no greed or aversion. There's nothing fragmenting that experience. So then when the mind one more time later gets lost in thought, then that sense of self gets reborn. But from the place of being settled in, a, in that alive and wild place, then the mind really, wisdom in the mind really sees how limiting our stories are. Even relatively wholesome stories like, oh, my meditation is going pretty well. Pretty good. That's a pretty good set. Right? So even that thought seems pretty harmless, right? But there you are in that sort of resting, releasing into the dance of sensations being known, experiencing the wholeness of that, the non-fragmentation of that. And the thought arises with some identification, oh, I'm having a good set. And because of the contrast, the mind, the wisdom in the mind, really sees the birth, the arising of that constriction of a me who's having a good set. Does that make sense? It's like, you know, you're making love or you're having a nice time with a friend or you're playing one-on-one basketball or you're, you know, you're doing something and you're really just in the activity and it's, it's very joyful, it's very alive. The mind is naturally present in an effortless way and then you ruin it, right? You go, this is so great, I don't want it to end, right? And immediately it's ended. Whatever joy was happening, whatever freedom, whatever aliveness, now all of a sudden there's a somebody, there's a neurotic somebody who doesn't want it to end. Well, and then, and then immediately you want to get back to it. But that's not the way back. Being the neurotic somebody who wants to get back to that fresh experience is not how we get back to it. How do we get back to it? It's this, what we learn in our sitting practice, like we start over again. First, we notice that the neurotic activity is just a thought. If there's a charge to the thought, is that I said earlier, right? Oh yeah, that's just a charge being known. Thinking, that's just thought being known. Emotional charge, that's just that yucky charge being known. It's just that yucky feeling being known. So the non-identification with the drama of the me who wants to get back to that nice experience The non-identification allows it to cease on its own without you getting rid of it. Because a thought, a drama, a reaction, it has to happen moment by moment. So as long, as soon as we stop feeding it by being attached to it, then its nature is to cease because it's not being fed. And you don't have to make your neurotic dramas go away. You just have to stop feeding them by being identified Take it impersonally. And then it ceases. And then in that moment, now there's a little bit of space because the drama was there. It had to sort of fill the space of the mind. And now the drama's ended. And then it's a beautiful time to go, oh, body, here it is. And to practice one more time, resting, opening, releasing into this dance of this elemental dance of sensation, right? Hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, coldness, heat, movement, pressure, whatever those elements that are available, whether it's gross or subtle. Because sometimes the body, when we open to it, feels like twisted steel. But like I said, we practice what? Not being confused. Okay, it really hurts. It's really intense. But 
that doesn't mean it's dangerous to open, to trust it, to rest in it, right? Just because it's unpleasant or just because it's subtle. Oh, it's like nothing's here. I need something more concrete. Oh, why? Why can't we be with the empty, open, space-like feeling of the body if that's how it is right now for us? So part of this movement into the experience of embodiment is not to second-guess it. It's like it's not for the thinking mind to determine how the body should feel. Like how, how would we know what the body's supposed to feel like now? Right? So it's really about, well, just receive it. We don't need to do anything. Like do you, right now, do you have to do something to feel your body, to be sensitive to the body? The mind or whatever the knowing part of the mind is, it's already sensitive, already exposed to sensation. So we don't need to, like, how could we know? Oh, no, no, this isn't right. <laughs> I shouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling. I mean, that's such an arrogant, deluded sense that we would know, like, no, no, God's made a mistake. I'm not supposed to be feeling what I'm feeling right now. But this is how it is. This is another line we use to encourage. This is how the body is now. This is the experience of the knowing, the sensitivity, being intimate with what's here, what's arising in body, in the body right now. And I can either, in a contracted way, run from it, or I can say, yes, this is how it is. And then it really sets up this uh, ability to... Uh, move beyond conceit, this what we call wrong view, taking things personally. We really need that experience of unification that comes from just being intimate in the body. And then from this place, when the you know, ego-based, self-centered dramas reemerge, present themselves, then we really see how dysfunctional, unnecessary, stressful they are. And so the like they just it doesn't make sense to re-inhabit self-centered drama. From the point of embodiment, it doesn't make sense. But from the point of being neurotic, already caught in a self-centered drama, jumping to another self-centered drama makes a lot of sense. Because there's a momentary feeling like, oh, it's so good to put that drama down before we realize how stressful this drama is. So Normal, ordinary human existence is jumping from one self-centered drama to the next, getting exhausted, being burdened by one, and finding another drama to absorb into, and then getting exhausted or you know, burnt out by that one and finding another and finding another. And a good life is being skillful enough to have one drama after another to jump into that life never feels too oppressive really was a wise life is seeing how endlessly exhausting that life is and wondering, is there another way? And then we run into these, inst- these instructions, teachings from the Buddha, and we say, well, he says, well, practice using something like the body. And remember, this is just one technique using the body, the experience of embodiment. But practice opening to that in such a complete 
way, a way that has so much integrity, self-honesty in a sense, that the mind abandons temporarily its need for conceptual meaning. I don't need meaning because I can just be intimate. And then, from, and then discovering there's a lot of emotional, psychological healing, really learning to trust that whole wholeness, that unification of just being in the dance of sensation. And there's no sense of separation in that experience. And this is just the beginning of insight. And like I said, the real power then comes when the force of habit to create drama again reestablish itself in the mind, but now the mind sees it for what it is, stressful. Honey, this is stressful. Becoming the one who's worried about tomorrow is stressful. I can live inside that bubble. Nobody's going to stop me. But is it helpful? The mind really sees in a practical, pragmatic way. It just doesn't help. It's not useful. It doesn't add anything. I want to leave it here so we have some time to hear from each other. You might have some thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or questions. We've got a mic here. Remember to point it right at your mouth in this way. Anybody want to begin? What have you been learning or what questions come to mind? Your own experience of embodiment. Yeah, Leela first. All the way in the chair. Um, As I was sitting here, feels so good to sit perfectly nice, straight, my spine, feeling it as I rested, as I relaxed. I began to feel tension because I, my spine was no longer nice and straight. So without making a story, I stretched back up. Is that no longer in the middle? Well, you first of all, you know the answer. So if you didn't hear, Leela, she was saying that you know, she was sitting with some continuity and at some point noticed that the spine had collapsed. And without telling a story, she saw, noticed the body correcting the posture, right? So it's, you'll know from, even in hindsight, you know, to some degree, you'll know whether, the, how much the mind constructed some conceptual meaning and inhabited it with attachment, like fixing that I'm bad because I moved, or I feel justified that I moved, or did they notice that I moved, or it's okay to move because everybody's moving, or, you know, there's like any number of stories the mind could have told and gotten identified with to some degree. And then if that happened, wisdom would have noticed that's stressful. To do that, to inhabit, you know, to have the meeting, but especially to get identified with the meeting. But you might have had some of those thoughts, but not much attachment to those thoughts, right? Like little flits. Like a thought without attachment isn't much of anything. What makes thoughts toxic or conceptual meaning toxic isn't the thought itself. It's the identification or attachment. There's a sense of a somebody who's trying to get some safety from the thought or the meaning the thought constructs, the holding to it, the getting established or dependent on it. That's the suffering. So if you didn't notice that, then there probably wasn't much of a problem with it. Certainly there's not a problem moving, 
So my, I think a part of my question is awareness of my body. Is the awareness my body? And the awareness is not separate from my body. So my, so to stay in the middle is also to be conscious and aware. Yeah, there's no way to be in the middle without awareness. Now remember, we talk about awareness and we talk about what awareness knows. So in the case of tonight, we've been talking about body sensations, so the elemental nature like feeling heat or feeling hardness. But there's no hardness without the awareness knowing the hardness. So one of, that's what I meant about that experience of wholeness. It's like you're not creating a duality in that experience. The mind isn't creating duality. So this being known, it sounds like there's a duality. There's the knowing and the object that's being known. And we normally, wrongly, think of it like I'm the observer knowing the experience that's over there. But that's not actually the experience of awareness. The experience of awareness is there's no distance between the knowing and the object that's being known. So when we say it's Dhamma, it's Dharma, it's the way it is, we're talking about that there's just this. And you can talk about this in terms of awareness, or you can talk about this in terms of what's being known by awareness. But it isn't really two things. It's just this. So hardness is consciousness. Softness is consciousness. It's all the same. Yeah. And the more we're in that middle place, then the more the distinction between the knowing and the object that's being known, the more they blend together. So objects have a lot of the characteristics of awareness, right? Empty, light, as if it's nothing. So in Buddhism, we talk about the insubstantial nature. And, you, and this is not like out there experience. Like some of you, maybe many of you, in a set, and you've just been, you've had some continuity of mindfulness of the body, and the experience will be as if, like, in, a, in, a, like in a truthful way, it's like the body just feels like open space. And so though, that's sort of interesting. And it's like you catch a few sensations of hardness or, you know, what we would normally consider to be like actual sensations of the body, but they're like, they're just gone before we even, like that, that feeling of, oh yeah, the knee hurts, but, but it's mostly space. And then every once in a while it's like, yeah, I know the knee hurts, but I can't really find that experience of pain because it's, it's in, insubstantial. It's a little bit like in modern physics, you know, you know, it's like, yeah, the physicists would say, yeah, that's wood and that's floor and, you know, there's this earth. And, but, you know, from a quantum point of view, it's mostly just open space. Yeah, most of you know this, right? It's like when they measure the space between the neutrons and the protons and the subatomic particles. It's like when it gets right down to it, it's just space. And even the, the sort of, you know, the particles that are there, you can keep deconstructing them. And it's just, it's basically not much of anything. So this is being confirmed in modern physics. The same thing that we directly experience by paying attention in this way that has a lot of integrity, continuity. Thanks, Leela. Someone here had a hand up, right? Yeah, please. Do you want to pass it back and forth? 
I'm Ellie. And what you're talking about tonight really reminded me of something I experienced um, recently recently, and have been thinking about a lot. And just how, well, specifically, I went to one of my shifts the other day. Um, I work at a hospital and we were really short staffed. And I knew, I just thought right away, oh, okay, I'm going to be crabby and upset and it's going to be a terrible shift. And so that's the meaning the thinking mind creates. And then to some yeah. degree, there's probably some identification with it. Yeah. And I, I just noticed, so yeah, the first hour of my shift, I just, I wasn't connecting and I was just racing around and just assuming it was going to be really bad. And I just was like, wait a second. Um, it, it, there was a lot of pleasant things about the shift and I wasn't letting those like come into my heart, I think. And so, yeah, I really changed around. And I think I've been thinking about that lately. A lot of times when I wake up in the morning, I'll assume, Oh, I have this going on in my day. It's, it's going to be bad or it's going to be good or just a, thinking through of what my emotional status should be and it and then it doesn't turn out to be that way or if if I assume it's going to be really happy I'll be empty or so it just it, it it doesn't align with what comes to be and so I've been trying to just instead see what's going to be and be more neutral about it until things come up and this is the natural fruit of practice because whether you're doing it formally with the mindfulness of body but the more you're you, you trust awareness, the more you're going to notice the dramas, you're going to see them in a relative way. Oh, that's just a drama. I can either inhabit it, and then it will color my whole day. And so you get to this place that Ali is talking about where you can go back and forth, where in some moments on your shift, you were inhabiting the idea, this is going to be hard, we're short-staffed, stressful. In other moments, you realize, the mind realized, or you, we'd say, the wisdom in the mind realized, that's just a drama. And then there's some space where you, other realities can come in, like real moments of, of beauty and mo moments of joy and moments of engagement that are, can be very light. And this is, this is the telltale sign you're practicing when the dramas still arise because they have momentum and they, there are triggers out there that will trigger your patterns and you see the patterns and you kind of inhabit them, but you start noticing there's some space, some understanding that understands that's just a pattern. I don't have to be imprisoned by it as if it's an absolute truth. Thanks. We need to end here. It's 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath. You can pass the mic back to Jude if you would. Come back to the experience, the reality of sensation. Not needing to grasp any meaning the thinking mind is wanting to construct. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. It's always good to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.